0: Well, relationships are kind of the the glue that hold us together, right? And relationships are important for basically everything we do. Um, Relationships have expectations, right? Every relationship that you are a part of has expectations built into it. There is no such thing as no strings attached when we really think about it, right? Otherwise, there probably isn't a real relationship there. And whether we like it or not, relationships are, excuse me, expectations are kind of one of the hardest things for us to manage, one of the hardest things for us to communicate, one of the hardest things for us to deal with in relationships, because expectations are kind of the, the, what holds up the building of relationships. Expectations give relationships, I, I feel like I'm saying the same word over and over again, but it's okay. Anyways, expectations within relationships are hard, Right? defining them, communicating them, forgiving them, meeting them. I mean, expectations are really hard to manage. I mean, think about the family structure, for example. Think about whether or not you have kids right now, or think about when you were a kid. Every family has has parents and kids, and and there's a working relationship there, and there are expectations within the family, within the home, right? And there's always kind of this um, tension that's created through those expectations, right? Parents want their children to obey, to listen. Um, kids have this expectation that parents are clothing them, that parents are feeding them, that parents are, are taking care of them. My daughter Myra, you know, 10 months old now, is flying around the house. She's, she's crawling like a madwoman. Um, and it's, it's really exciting, except she's found our dogs like bowls and she thinks that they're, she actually thinks that they're tubs. She thinks they're like a hot tub for her to play in now. And, and, and as much as we want her to listen to us when we say no, it's hard for her to do that because she's a child, but also because, well, there are other issues and we'll get to that in a minute. But regardless of what we think, expectations are reflections of who we are in many ways, Right? Within our relationships, what we expect of other people is actually a, ref- a reflection of what we think is good, what we want to do, what we love. We want other people to want what we love. We want people to desire what we desire. We want people to do what we want to do to some degree, right? And that's not inherently bad. It's not inherently wrong for us to want what other people want and yet, even that can go astray. And what we find oftentimes is that one of the hardest things we deal with is the way expectations are dealt with. For example, my son, I love using illustrations with children um, because all of us can relate to being children, right? We were all children once. My son doesn't like to eat broccoli very much. How many of you guys love broccoli? I actually do love broccoli. I love broccoli. I love cauliflower. I love all kinds of those vegetables. And in our family, we eat lots of vegetables. So I want my son to eat vegetables, And yet, when he says, no, I don't want to eat vegetables, there's this conflicting expectation where my heart wants my heart to win and his heart wants his heart to win because as much as I want him to have more folic acid in his diet, as much as I want him to love leafy green vegetables like I do, he wants to not eat broccoli because it doesn't taste good to him. Um, And at the end of the day, there's this, this battle between our hearts, between what we desire and what we love and what we want to do. And that's hard. And the the thing that my wife and I keep running into, the challenge that we feel, and really the challenge that all of us feel on a pretty regular basis, is that rules don't change hearts, right? You can't legislate heart change. So no matter what your expectations are, you can't actually change somebody's hearts. You can't change someone's heart with laws. Take politics, for example. There's one thing we've learned from modern politics. It's that no matter how hard you try, you cannot legislate heart change. Now, laws are good, okay? So I'm not trying to be harsh on law, right? The law is important. We need to know how to live within a society or within a family. Laws are good and important and needed. And yet, regardless of what we want to say, laws do not change hearts. Laws don't change hearts. At best, they manage behavior. Now, I want the law that says don't kill somebody. Amen? Right? We all want that law in our society. But at the end of the day, if somebody really wants to kill somebody, are they going to kill somebody? They are. And so while laws manage behavior, they do not change hearts. And this is the heart of what we get to in our text this morning. Our text in Hebrews 8 talks a lot about a relationship. The central relationship between God and his people through covenant. And in this relationship, there are expectations that are met and expectations that are unmet. And what we'll see is, if you go back through the story of of the history of God's people, God has, has formed covenants with his people, formed relationships with them, and had expectations in that. Now, as we get to that, let me read the text, and then we'll jump into what it says. But what you need to know from this text is that you don't need more rules. You need a new heart. Let me read the text, and then we'll jump in together. Hebrews chapter 8, I'm reading from uh, the English Standard Version. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things." I will put my laws into their minds, and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As I said, our text this morning really points us to this need that we do not need more rules, we don't need more laws, we don't need greater expectations, we need new hearts. And we see in this text two things, two things that will help us understand this new covenant. Most of your Bibles probably say something about a new covenant in there, or Jesus, high priest of a better covenant is what mine says. And two things about this new covenant, the person and the purpose of the new covenant. We're going to talk about the person and the purpose of the new covenant. Before we do that, though, it's worth talking a little bit about covenant. Because covenant is language that we don't often use these days, so it's worth just getting a definition out there so that we're all on the same page. The ESV Study Bible defines covenant this way. The covenant between God and Israel in biblical context was a binding relational agreement between God and Israel based on deeds done by God and promises made by God, which Israel accepted by faith in God for the purpose of living for God as his unique people in the world. The best way to understand covenant is that it's a relationship. Covenant is the primary way that God has interacted with people throughout history. And in this relationship, There are expectations, okay? Oftentimes, the two words law and covenant are interchangeable in the Bible because the part, the law, represents the whole, the covenant, or the relationship. And so the law is actually the stipulations of the relationship. The covenant is the relationship, and the law are the expectations of that relationship. So as we get into this, we'll start to see how this flavors our text this morning. So first, let's talk a little bit about the person of this new covenant. If you look with me at verses 1 through 6, we see this person of the new covenant. His name is Jesus. Imagine that, right? Jesus is the person of this new covenant. Now, the author of Hebrews, I think that we've said in here before that Hebrews is actually a sermon it's most likely a sermon written to a group of people. We don't totally know where it was written to. We don't totally know who wrote it. But we're pretty sure it's a sermon based on how it's written and what it looks like and what it says. And up to this point, um, he's been talking about Jesus. The author, the the preacher has been talking about Jesus. And every once in a while, like a good preacher does, he takes a minute to take a step back and see what his audience is doing and, and recognize, pull him aside like a loving preacher and say, hey, hey, I'm going to summarize this point, or I need to, you know, clear my throat or check if the barn door is open or something like that, right? Nobody laughed at that. That was terribly inappropriate. <laughs> Anyways, all good preachers have to take a moment and, and, and summarize, or if you think back in chapters 5 and 6 of Hebrews, he kind of pulls them aside and says, hey, 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 do you know how serious this is if you step away from this faith that you've stepped into? Well, here in, verses, uh, in verse 1, but really in verse 1 and following, The preacher is is giving a summary point, and he says this in verse 1, if you look with me. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. So Jesus is this high priest that the author has been talking about since chapter 5. And really, he's been talking about Jesus ever since the beginning of the book. But the high priest has really come in in chapter 5 12 times in the book of Hebrews up to this point has he talked about this high priest, this language of high priest. Now, the high priest in the Old Testament was kind of a go-between, okay? He, he interacted, he was a mediator, he interacted on behalf of both God and his people, okay? So he represented both parties. And oftentimes what he did was he, he interacted in that way through the means of, of sacrifices and offerings. We see it in our text, sacrifices and offerings even. And Jesus is this high priest. But on top of that, he's not only a high priest, he's also a king. If you remember back to last week, Gabe talked about this king um, named Melchizedek, right? This guy who kind of feels like a throat, you know, you're trying to get something out of your throat, Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek, right? And um, this king was not only a king, he was also a priest, which was not normal in the Old Testament times. Because similar to our government today, we, we like to spread out the, the, the balance of power, if you will, between different branches of government. And in the Old Testament, it was very similar. No one person was supposed to have too much power. And so kings were not priests, and priests were not kings. They had different roles. They had different functions, different offices. Yet here in the Bible, two times before the book of Hebrews... So twice in the Old Testament, we see this person pop up named Melchizedek, this king who is also a priest. And it's very strange. But then we get to Hebrews, and he's littered through Hebrews, this guy Melchizedek. I mean, he's all over the place. So why is he important? Well, it's because he is the king-priest, because Jesus is in his family line, if you will, because Jesus is the king and the priest. So he not only rules and reigns over his people— but he regulates the law. He's the one who acts as the go-between, as 1 Timothy 2 will say. He's the, the one who can actually mediate the relationship between God alone and man himself, and man ourselves, man, uh, men, mankind. That's the best way to say it. So Jesus is this high king, or excuse me, this high priest, this king, Melchizedek. And yet, what we'll see in this text, look, text, look with me in verses 3 to 5, is that the old The old way of doing things was breaking down. It says in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The old priesthood, just like the sacrifices that they offered over and over again for the sin of the people, were insufficient because they didn't actually save. God saves people. Sacrifices don't save people. Offerings don't save people. And the priests, just like their, their, their sacrifices, were blemished, if you will. And that's why this need for this new king, this new priest, Jesus, is so great. And we saw that a little bit more in chapter 7. And I know this seems a little redundant, but it's, it'll be important and you'll see why in a minute. But then what it says there in verse 5 is really important that these old priests served a copy and a shadow. Now, copies or shadows, they resemble the things that they represent, Right? They give a picture, they depict, or they portray, they give a blueprint of that which they represent. So what the text is saying is that the old covenant, the old priesthood, the old way of relating to God isn't inherently bad, but it's looking forward to something else. It's pointing to something else. It represents, it resembles something with substance. Colossians 2 will say that that the old covenant is a copy but the substance belongs to Christ so the purposes of the old covenant if you go back and read the old covenant the purposes of the old covenant are to clearly define what sin is what does disobedience to God's word really look like that's one of the purposes another purpose is to set up worship um, functions within the people of God Right. so what do sacrifices and grain offerings and all these things look like But ultimately, the purpose of the old covenant is to show God's people, to show all people, that no matter how hard we try, we need a savior. Because we will sin so much more than any sacrifice could ever, ever cover. Because no matter who offers that sacrifice for us, no matter how holy that high priest is, and how unblemished that goat or that ram is, we need a sacrifice that is truly perfect we need to sacrifice a person a high priest who is truly sinless and so our text is trying to say the old covenant isn't bad but its purpose was to point us to jesus the pattern is the same but the purpose and the person is different and what we see here over and over again is jesus jesus is central to our relationship with god i mean how simple is that point write that down go ahead yeah take notes Yeah, Jesus is central to our relationship with God, which I know that seems ultimately silly, right, in a church to say Jesus is central to our relationship with God. But if you're anything like me, I forget that sometimes. I recognize that Jesus is important in my life, but I oftentimes forget that Jesus is ultimately central in not only my relationship with God, but really every relationship I have. You know, we, have, you know, we want everybody to like our, our, our you know, catchy dribble on Facebook, and we want people to check out all of our really clever tweets. And we think that we are like the center of our own universe, right? I mean, that's what our heart tells us. Jeremiah, earlier in, in the book of Jeremiah, says that our hearts are wildly deceitful. And I know, I know for me, at least, you guys might be perfect, but I know for me, I think that I am the center of this world almost all the time. You might, you might not think that that's you. I know that that's true for me. And what I find is that the Bible continues to tell me that that is just not, that that is just not the case. On top of that, we tend to ask ourselves, are relationships worth it, right? These expectations are hard. And we do cost-benefit analysis with friendships, Right? We try to say, is there added value to this relationship or is it worth just letting it fall by the wayside? And the reality is, is most relationships aren't worth it when you get down to the brass tacks, right? Most relationships are extremely hard because you have to sacrifice for them because, y- because your heart has to lose most of the time. And that's extremely hard. Yet this book, this book constantly points us back to the centrality of Jesus, not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationships with everybody. You know, you go seven chapters here, Hebrews 1 through 7, just talks about Jesus over and over and over again. Jesus is the true and better revelation of God because he's the exact imprint of his character and nature, right? Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is the true and better uh, Adam because he does everything that Adam that we couldn't do as God's actual, you know, created image bearers. Jesus is the true and better Moses, because he built a temple that is perfect, and then he sacrificed himself on the altar. Jesus is the true and better Aaron. Here, in chapter 7 and and 5 and 6 and 7, we see Jesus is the true and better high priest. And if there's a true and better high priest, then there has to be a new covenant. What we see here is that Jesus is the person of the new covenant. And if there is a new person of a new covenant, or excuse me, if there's a new person, a new high priest, then there has to be a new covenant, right? Hebrews chapter 7, um, 7, 12 will say that when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So let's pick back up. Let's read again. Oh, flip the page. Let's read again in verse 7 and 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We've seen that Jesus is the person of the new covenant, and here in this text we start to see a new purpose a purpose for this new covenant. Jeremiah, this quote from Jeremiah, if you mark it up and say Jeremiah 31, that's what we had Ray read earlier. This quote from Jeremiah is the largest Old Testament quote in the whole New Testament. And yet, it has probably the least amount of commentary on the actual quote itself. Which is kind of strange, right? You gotta wonder why that is. And on top of that, this quote from um, Jeremiah is um, the only place in the Old Testament that talks about a new covenant. There's this promise of a new covenant, some, somebody who's going to bring and reign in this new covenant. Now, if you notice, like I did when I first read this, it talks about faults. You know, if you look at verse 7, it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says. And the question I ask myself when I read that is, did God do something wrong here? Did God make something that was with error, or did God make something that was bad? As it were. And the answer, generally from scripture, is not generally, specifically, clearly, is definitely not. God did not do something wrong. So we have to try to make sense of this briefly, right? Why does it say fault? Well, if you read through the argument of Hebrews, if you read through this argument of Hebrews, you'll get to this point where it it recognizes that pattern language, where the pattern had been set in the Old Testament, or in the Old Covenant, but a new covenant was coming, a new and better covenant that was based on a better promise. It said there in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better because it is enacted on better promises. If you go back to Exodus 19, you know, in Exodus 20, we get the, the Ten Commandments, right? We get the beginning of the law, essentially, where God gives his law to his people. If you go back and read Exodus 19 you understand kind of this promise language. And I'll read a little bit for you. It says in Exodus 19, verses 4 and 5, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God says, I've saved you. Now, if you keep your end of the bargain, if you keep up your expectations, excuse me, your end of the expectations of this relationship, then this covenant will remain intact. Now we all know that Israel failed to keep their end of the bargain. I mean, it was like minutes almost or hours or barely days later when Israel already was, was creating a golden calf and worshiping as, God, as Moses was up the mountain with God again, right? And our hearts similarly We don't want to do what God wants us to do. We want to do what we want to do because we think we are central in this world. We think everything revolves around us. We are the sun. Everybody else are the planets and Pluto, depending on whether or not you count Pluto, a moon, or a planet. And that's the hard reality. And so this old covenant never purposed to save people because, as I said, covenants don't save people. God saves people. But it was necessary to point all of us to a coming Redeemer, to a Savior that we all needed, and that's Jesus. Now, there's three things I want to observe in this text, in this new covenant, that I think will be helpful for us as we leave today. The first is this. This new covenant is all about changed hearts. It says there in verse 10, This covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So instead of God speaking the word of the law, instead of God saving his people and then speaking the word of the law into existence, this external thing, God now, in this new relationship through Jesus Christ, will actually write his heart on our hearts. Instead of writing it on tablets of stone, he will engrave it on the tablets of our hearts. The second thing I I want to observe here is that not only is it about changed hearts, it's also about a restored relationship. Also there in verse 10, it says, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The story of the Bible is one of God making a people for himself, for his glory, for his name. And this new covenant, this new relationship, that's what it's all about. God making a people for himself. The last thing I want to observe is that it's about Forgotten sin. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In this new covenant, God will not remember that which we, th- those things we do against his will, for he will forgive them, so much so that they will be wiped clear from his mind, so much so that he will not remember what we have done against him because of the, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. The purpose of this new covenant is a changed heart through a new relationship because our sins have been forgotten. This new covenant is a picture of the gospel because in the gospel, Jesus gives us new hearts that can obey God, not because we're good, but because we're given a Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. And even when we fall, even when we fall, we're already forgiven. We're already forgiven because our sin has been forgotten by God himself. This is a picture of the good news. Now, our hearts long for the law. Our hearts long for the law because we think that we can actually accomplish our end of the bargain, right? We want to be able to say, hey, God, I did good. I really did. But the story of the Bible is one where we recognize we cannot, without God's help, do anything good in his eyes. Without a new heart, we cannot obey him because our heart wants to do what we want to do, not what God loves and not what he desires for our life. And in this old covenant, excuse me, in this new covenant, we get new hearts. So how do we get new hearts? And the the, the resounding answer from scripture and even from Hebrews is repentance and faith. If you think back to chapters 5 and 6 of Hebrews, there's this, relatively long extended conversation on repentance in just a couple chapters, in ch- chapter 10 and then chapter 11 of Hebrews. There's this hall of faith, as many people call it, or the family of faith. There's this beautiful history, this narrative history of the people who were faithful to God because of the faith he gave them. And the overarching story of, of how we get this, this new heart is through repenting of our sin, turning away from our sin and trusting in Jesus. Jesus, when he came into his kingdom, when he came into his earthly ministry in Mark 1, he said, the kingdom is near, meaning it's bound up with him. Repent and believe in the gospel of God. We get a new heart through repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus. If you are here this morning and you do not know who Jesus Christ is or you're not sure about any of these things, the most The easiest thing I can say to you, the the most important thing you take away from this entire morning, is that God calls all of us sinners because all of us fail to do what he desires. All of us, every single one of us here. He calls each and every single one of us sinners. And yet he says to each and every single one of us, I will give you a new heart if all you do is turn from your sin and believe in me. This is what the picture of the new covenant says. It says, no longer do you have to uphold your end of the bargain because I've given to Jesus everything that you did wrong. I placed it on him. He took it to the cross. Through death, he killed death. He conquered death. And he he now gives you new life through a new heart, a restored relationship because your sin has been forgotten. And this is the good news of the gospel. Friends, this morning, our author, our preacher, if you will, is telling us one thing. He says to us in, in, in verse 1, he says, if you believe in Jesus, if you're a Christian, this is what you have. You have this new heart. And that sounds really abstract in terms of like an application, right? Like you have this Jesus. Oh, thank you. But this is good news. For we have a high priest who has done everything that we couldn't do and everything we should have done so that from now on we can live in obedience to him, joyful obedience, Because we have new hearts. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. (laughs) Lord, a beautiful day is a day when the sun does the work. we thank you for what you did through Christ, that we might be saved, that we might not only know you, but that we might be able to live in relationship with you where our end of the bargain is taken care of, where the expectations you have placed on us, you have also taken upon yourself through Jesus. Father, we ask in this time that you would help us as a community, as a body, to live in light of that truth, to live in, in the good news of the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would remove our sins from us, that you would not only break the bondage we have to sin, but that you'd help us see how you've done that, that we might live in joyful obedience to you more and more each day. And Lord, we ask in this time that you would bless our efforts to bring you glory, to bring you glory by living in joy with Jesus. We praise praise him In this time, amen.